Welcome to the social side of sport, where SPKN's Meg Wilson joins renowned sports sociologist Dr. Jay Coakley in discussions about the relationship between society and sport. Each episode provides a unique perspective as they delve into various sociocultural structures, patterns, and organizations involved in and surrounding sport. They discuss the positive impact sports have on individual people and society as a whole, economically, financially, and socially. The social side of sport provides a quick glimpse into the actions and behavior of sports teams and their players through the eyes of a sociologist. Welcome back to our discussion with renowned sports sociologist Jay Coakley, Professor Emeritus at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs. Thank you for joining us, Jay. Hey, it's good to be with you again, Meg. So I look forward to our conversation here. It seems that today that sports are a hotbed of legal, political, and social issues. Gender is, of course, one of, in all its different forms, is one of such issues. And navigating these waters can be sometimes confusing and somewhat controversial. So we're very happy to have you here as we embark on the exploration of gender in sport. I think Maybe it would be best if we start with some general definitions. Okay, yeah. Well, I think the the hottest issue right now is related to transgender people and transsexuals. And a lot of people don't understand those terms. You know, they think that in many cases, it's just people pretending to be something that they're not biologically. And that is is oversimplified and inaccurate. So yeah, it's important to define those terms. So transgender basically refers to any person whose gender identity doesn't match the person's assigned sex at birth. So that's, that's just a general definition. And gender identity, by the way, refers to the psychological identification as, either, as a boy or a man or as a girl or a woman. And transsexual is a more specific term that some people use to refer to those who have actually gone through hormone therapy and other kinds of therapies and actual surgeries to change physiological characteristics to match their desired gender identity and and change from what the, the sex that they were assigned at birth. So transsexual is a, is a specific term. Now, some people say, wait a minute, identity can be grounded in either psychology or biology. So we're not going to make a distinction here between sex and gender. We're going to talk about them as being the same and that people uh, have choices related to how they see themselves, how they want to present themselves to others, and how they want others to respond to them. But that makes a lot of people nervous, and it doesn't fit with their kind of essentialistic approach to gender, where there are only two categories of human beings, males and females, and there's nothing in between, and that you've got to be one or the other, period. And that has to match your sex, your assigned sex at birth. So this is creating some real contentiousness in the case of sports in particular. Yeah, well, we've talked about it before, having the equipment, you either have the equipment or you don't, and you're either female or, or male, and, and as, as far as sex goes. But mm -hmm. and of course, there's always outliers there. There's many different things that happen that you have multiple equipment or not 
enough equipment in either direction. So that, that would be as science does, we generalize that to most of us have either one set of equipment or the other set of equipment. And so that would be considered sex, correct? Well, or is that be- kind of getting blurred as well? Because I always thought of gender being more of a social construct, whereas male and female is, is, is and the equipment is sex. Right, Bi- or biological. And biological. You know, so there's a few questions related to that. What should take priority in terms of the way we interact with others and define ourselves and others? And the other one is that sex is not as cut and dried as we think it is. So, you know, there's a lot of variations uh, among females and a lot of variations among males. And there's a lot of overlap with 97 or 8% of our characteristics. So what kinds of equipment do we decide on as being, you know, the, the differentiating factors? And those are subject to cultural issues and social decisions to an extent. So, you know, biology isn't as clear cut as as many people assume and that there's variations. There's a continuum here related to uh, females and males and their overlap. So to come up with a classification system that has these two discrete boxes that everybody should fit in and anybody who doesn't fit in is either abnormal, unnatural, or immoral, or all three, is coming to be seen as an unrealistic and inaccurate way to view things. Well, and it's interesting, too, because some some might think that transgender and transsexual issues in sports are actually kind of a new thing, but it's not actually new. Why, why do you think that it's become so controversial in this day and age? Well, yeah, let me just give you a little bit of background. And I and I didn't know about this until a little while ago, but there is a there's a professor at the University of Pennsylvania, I think, and she wrote a book on uh, in 2008 on the histories of transgender among children. And she went all the way back in medical and clinical archives in the United States and found out that, you know, there were a lot of trans, not, I use that term pretty loosely. There were, there were a number of transgender individuals, children, back in the early 20th century. And in many cases, in especially among middle-class white people, the families had the resources to kind of take care of things discreetly, where a person went to school, they went as a girl, even though they had been assigned as a male, they've been determined to be a male at birth, and the teacher accepted it. The other students didn't know about it, and, you know, the person went on their way without it becoming a social issue. So it was just a personal kind of a challenge rather than a social issue those kinds of situations have existed in the past. But once people became public about being transgender, that then created a lot of confusion because people hadn't ever met anyone who was transgender that they knew of. So this was really confusing to them, and it was new, and it didn't fit with their essentialistic view of gender. So they then defined it as, like I said, as abnormal, unnatural, or immoral. And then it became a social issue. Why is it so important today, especially in connection with sports? Well, because there's been kind of an opening of minds among some people in 
cultures around the world, the United States being one of them, where younger people are saying, wait a minute, you know, if I don't fit into these two boxes, I'm going to live my life outside of them. And I want to play sports. So what are the issues here? Because sports is one of the only spheres in U.S. culture and in, and in many other post-industrial cultures right now that divide people according to male and female. So you have men's and women's sports. You don't have men's and women's stuff in, you know, officially in other spheres that I can think of. So we still have bathrooms, but even we're, we're, we're getting past that. Yeah, I think the bathrooms is one of the ones that we need to get rid of really quickly. I think everyone should have a private bathroom anyway for lots of issues, including safety. And, and that's a no-brainer. <laughs> yeah, private bathrooms, or you know, I've used the mixed bathrooms, and you know, everybody has their own stall, and then yeah. you wash your hands to and go by myself. View view Personally. yourself and. Uh, with others. And, you know, the first time that I experienced that after having grown up with, you know, our men's and women's bathrooms, restrooms, it was, I noticed it for sure. You know, I was standing next to a woman who's washing her hands and combing her hair. And I thought, well, this is different. And I grew up with four sisters and we shared a bedroom for God's sakes. And we were always in the same bathroom at, at the same time. But still, this was a little bit different. I, I, I won't say shocking, actually, but I've experienced it now a number of times, and I'm pretty used to it. So, you know, there's no reason why a man and woman can't wash their hands at adjoining sinks. And, you know, there, there may be some new designs for bathroom <laughs> architecture that we need, but so Which be hasn't it. been done in a very long time, I don't think. That's yeah. probably one of the architectures that hasn't quite gotten the attention it might <laughs> other things have. <laughs> right, right. I'm going to go back to my personal experience here. When I shared a bedroom at one time with all four sisters, then later with just two, it was my brother and I sharing with two of our sisters, you know, that was widely accepted in the 1950s. I mean, this, this was not out of the ordinary. You, you know, you didn't have five bedroom houses for the most part. And people just assumed that boys and girls were going to share a bedroom. Now, when you talk to people, you know, they, they get into a moral panic in some cases about, you know, a son and daughter sharing a bedroom. And they are looking at this in, in more puritanical terms in 2021 than we were in the 1950s. And so that's an interesting issue here. And anybody who's traveled and knows that in high-density societies, you know, men and women share all sorts of spaces without it taking on any kinds of sexual connotations or anything. So, so this is a cultural issue that we have to come to terms with. Absolutely. I, I think the one thing that I would say is that I have been in, you know, when you have to, when the, when the line's too long and you have to go in the men's, it's not as nice. <laughs> so maybe men can start working on their aim as we, as we open up all the, all the restrooms to everybody. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Anybody who's been to a Mardi Gras or a big concert, yes. Yes. all experience this, you know, exactly. and those, those porta potties 
Absolutely. <laughs> Those are special. Right. So we can get used to that. Now, the big question is, how, how do we get used to it in sports? And that there's some other issues there that that people have raised that we need to come to terms with as well is so. sport really the only place that we're still separating separating out male and female i was trying to think yeah i can't think of others except for voluntary associations that are being challenged all over the place you know the old male rotary club or civitan club or right. you know, those kinds of things you know those barriers have been defined as illegal, or women have crashed them informally and open up doors on their own. But in terms of official distinctions that, you know, that can't be where there can't be exceptions, sport, as far as I know, is the only realm within which that occurs. And I could be wrong. We, we might have to double check on this and we'll, we'll put it in the notes. The NBA and other quote male organizations actually do not have anything in the in the bylines that say that women cannot play. The reason the WNBA came about now that's legally, but the, the reason why women's leagues have have popped up is so that women have a chance to play professional sports or I mean this has been some something that has been brought up to me that the reason why there are women's leagues is because, women cannot compete on the level that the men can because of their body makeup or um, because of the testosterone level. Is this true? Yeah, well, women as a group couldn't compete, but women as individuals can in a number of sports compete. And interestingly, some of the trans males who are participating in men's sports after having grown up as a girl, are in some cases being very successful, winning co national competitions really? and making Olympic teams. So in the United States, Chris Moser, for example, has made a U.S. team in duathlon, uh, which is a combination of running, cycling, and running. You run a certain distance, you cycle a certain distance, run a certain distance, and there's different categories of distances for, you know, different kinds of races. But Chris is now a trans athlete activist and a, and a transgender activist generally, but he's won competitions in triathlon, for example, that are top competitions. And he grew up as a girl and now he's racing against men as a trans man. That's interesting because so, it seems like most of the focus is on men transgendering into women, transgender women that grew, that were, grew up as men and now have transformed into women. I mean, that's where the issues are. You know, I'm not sure about the exact numbers here. You know, I, people haven't counted them. It's really tough to count because a lot of people aren't out and they fear being out because they subject them. They're not only marginalized socially in some cases, but, you know, they're threatened physically. In some cases, you know, we've had people killed and, and physically harmed in serious ways for being a trans person. So, you know, it's still a, a really difficult issue to deal with in many ways.
So the, the situations that we hear about in sports are trans females, you know, somebody who grew up and especially went through puberty as a male and then has transitioned and has transitioned with hormones, you know, testosterone suppression, and they want to compete in women and girls or women's sports. And by the way, the NCAA and the IOC have not had problems with this. You know, they have developed a standards rules under which this can happen. And I would refer anybody to the NCAA handbook on transgender. It's pretty involved. And the NCAA, I've got to commend, I'm not a big NCAA fan when it comes to certain things, but I really have to commend them on this handbook. They got the best people in the country to come together and to talk about this seriously with a commitment to inclusion and to sport as an educational experience. And if we start from, you know, using those as principles, how do we get to be inclusive here when it comes to transgender people. And it's not a big, it's not such a big deal with men, with men who are transitioning to being female. I mean, excuse me, with females who are transitioning to be males, okay, male to female transitions, except in cases where some people have said, wait a minute, they're taking testosterone in connection with their transition. And they think that this testosterone may, in some sports, with some individuals, be creating an unfair advantage. That's a real iffy kind of assumption. And I don't think it's backed up by the data that we have currently. So that's not so much of an issue. So it's, it's the male to female transition where it's an issue. And where you grow up, you experience puberty as a boy and as a young man, and then you transition and your height, your size, in some cases, your weight may be related to that transition, pre-transition maleness. And people say, well, wait a minute, that gives those females an unfair advantage. And they ought to be competing in a third category here, which is pretty unreasonable because there's not enough people to have a third category. Mm -hmm. And these individuals are legally female. Mm -hmm. So how are you going to come up with a ban? Now, this has become a political issue right now. And the GOP in particular has grabbed onto it because they're interested in recruiting women voters, especially middle-class suburban, so-called suburban mom voters who have daughters who are playing sports and they don't want their daughters competing against somebody who went through puberty as a male and is now a female. Now, I'm not sure how many of those moms are like that, but the GOP is, in a sense, using the, the Trump tactic of, of inciting some fear here and maybe even some moral panic about this situation, even though a lot of the people who are worried about it can't name one person in their whole state that is a trans female who is competing and successfully winning against their competitors in girls' sports. You know, to an extent, some of these laws that states are passing right now or contemplating passing, 23 states at least are in the process of doing that. You know, 
these laws are basically solutions in search of a problem because it isn't a problem in these states. So when, you know, in South Dakota, when, when Christine Noem, uh, the governor there, was asked about the law that she was being asked to sign in South Dakota that banned all trans females from participation in girls and women's sports at high school and college, she couldn't name one individual in the state of South Dakota where this was an issue. So that's kind of a problem. It's, it's yeah. politicians who are saying, who are creating an issue that, that they hope to create enough fear around that people will side with them in the next election. Politicians are great that way, aren't they? Well, some of them are, and <laughs> hopefully not all of them are. So. Well, so it sounds like there's two kind of issues with transgender women competing against non-transgender women. And that is, one is, you know, being afraid that they are, are men and so they're, they're too good, they have too much muscle, they have too much, you know, testosterone to compete fairly against non-transgender women. And the other is a safety issue. I know I've heard and, and many others have heard that there have been transgender women who have participated with non-transgender women and have that it's it's ended very poorly because of a safety issue. Is there any substantiation to that? Uh, do we know if a sustained testosterone suppression can adequately reduce any natural advantages to the male body? Yeah, I think that this is an emerging issue. And, and by the way, when I say that, even our terminology is emerging. You know, we don't have the words yet to fit, to explain, describe the, the changes that are occurring within our culture and, you know, within cultures around the world. When uh, that professor wrote the book on transgender children, you know, those, those kids growing up in the early 1900s you know, there was no terminology uh, related to transgender. So, you know, we've, we've had to develop terms to keep up. And by the way, language changes as situations change. So, and I got a little bit off track there, but we're learning to cope with this as a society and, and each of us as individuals. And we need research on exactly what's going on here. But the problem is that when it comes to biological, physiological characteristics, especially related to performance, we don't know all the things that testosterone does or doesn't do. You know, we all vary in our levels of testosterone and estrogen. We all have both hormones, even though we call testosterone a male hormone and estrogen a female hormone. I have estrogen. I probably have less testosterone now at my age than my granddaughter does. You know, so those kinds of things we have to take into account. By the way, our levels of testosterone vary depending on what kinds of physical activities we're engaged in. And they, in addition to varying from one individual to another. So there are a lot of people with lower levels of testosterone, men, who are beating men with higher levels of testosterone across almost all sports. So we don't really know exactly what testosterone does for each individual. And that's one of the things that makes people nervous. The IOC has decided, and most international sport federations have decided on testosterone level as the thing 
that distinguishes men from women. And they say that if a woman wants to participate in women's sports, she has to bring her testosterone level down to below any male. And there are women who are born with testosterone levels who are higher than that. This is a natural characteristic. So we're asking women to change the characteristics that they're born with in order to be a woman or to be classified as female for the purposes of sport participation. And that really rubs a lot of people, including myself, the wrong way. We're asking women to have surgeries, for example, intersex women who are born with a combination of male and, and female uh, sex characteristics, that we're asking them to have surgeries to change their bodies in order to compete as women. Now, we're not asking any men who have testosterone levels that are off the charts to go through some kind of hormone therapy or something else that would lower their testosterone level. I guess you can't be too much of a man, but... Uh, <laughs> but Want with, a bet? <laughs> so, so, you know, men are not seen in that way. I mean, sport was developed by and for men, and the more manly you are, the better off you are in men's sports. So it's not, so, it's not an issue there, uh, despite the fact that there may be a lot of unfairness related to testosterone or some other characteristic in men's sports. And by the way, when you talk about injuries, I was an expert witness back in the 1970s in a case in Indiana where a wrestler, you know, and in wrestling, you can always, you can wrestle a, a, category, a weight category up. So a light heavyweight wrestled up a level in the heavyweight and was wrestling yeah. a high school opponent who was a hundred pounds bigger than he was. And, and he broke his neck oh. and he was paralyzed. His whole body was paralyzed. And uh, they were asking me whether this kind of situation should exist and what the issues were. And before I had a chance to testify, this young man died and it turned into a wrongful death suit, which at that time was limited at about $20,000. And so there was a settlement and I never testified. But these injuries, when you think of the size differences of football players, even in the NFL, you know, we're talking about major size differences, and nobody has made that a distinction, you know, an issue. But when it comes to women and people wanting to protect women in ways that you don't protect men, this has become an issue. And, and by the way, my granddaughter played rugby in the Pac-12 at Oregon, at the University of Oregon. She played with and against trans females and she actively campaigned against world rugby when they were, you know, enacting their ban, by the way, on trans females in, in rugby and in official international competitions, because she didn't feel it was an issue. And she said, you know, I played with a lot of women who were bigger than any of the trans females that I was playing with. <laughs> and, and they were more aggressive and assertive. And I was, I was more concerned with playing with or against them than I was with some of the, with the trans females. So it wasn't an issue for her or 
for the most part, any of the other rugby players that she was familiar with in college rugby. So, you know, this is an emerging issue and people are having to come to terms with it. When are there things that we should be concerned about and when are there not? So, so one, of the, one of the things this brings up is, you know, advocates of girls and women's rights in sports have argued that the inclusion of gen transgender women will hurt the rights of girls and women. We, you know, women have been fighting for equality in, in sports for a long time. How would this influx change things for, say, you know, Title IX and, and women's sports, that equality? Yeah, gender equity gen uh, in so the, well, first of all, you know, when, when you use the word influx, we don't know. And I would guess that there's not going to be some kind of an invasion here <laughs> into women's sports of young people who are trans females. So we don't know how many people there are, but my guess is that there are not a lot, even though you know, the young people I talk to, most of them know somebody who's going through a transition, you know, either male to female or female to male. And they know about the hormone therapies and other, the surgeries and everything else that I had never heard of when I was in high school. Mm -hmm. So this is not so much a big issue with, with the young people. And I'm not sure how many people are going through transitions. And of the people who are going through transitions, are, are they people who want to play sports? You know, this is the other issue. So if you're a boy growing up and you're transitioning as, and this would be relatively rare, as a 15-year-old and you wanted to play high school sports, well, if you were transitioning as a 15-year-old, would you want to play high school sports? Mm -hmm. And I'd say that the majority wouldn't. And of those who would, would they be good? Would they, would they somehow excel? just for the fact that they're a transitioning person or a transition person? Mm -hmm. No. So, and, and legally they're females. So why shouldn't they have the same rights as other females? That's the issue that we're wrestling with here. And that's the issue in Connecticut where there were two uh, trans female sprinters, both of whom are black females, by the way, and some of the white females who raced with them and lost in, in some significant races. They have come together with others and they've got some good funding behind them and they've filed a lawsuit that would lead to Connecticut banning trans females in high school sports. And we don't know how that's going to turn out. But like all of these laws that are that are being considered and passed in other states, Arkansas most recently, just in the last couple of days, relative to our conversation today, you know, we don't know what the outcomes of those laws are going to be. You know, they're going to be challenged in court. It's eventually going to go to the Supreme Court and we're going to see what happens. And I think that even after a Supreme Court decision, there's still going to be some contention left and people are going to still be arguing about, about this. But the research is going to continue to occur. We're going to find out if a year, which by the way, the IOC and the NCAA say that if you're a trans female, you have to go through a year of testosterone suppression before you can compete. And, and what the reason for that is they want to make sure 
that that somebody is really serious about this, that they've worked with a therapist, that they've been diagnosed in a particular way, and that they're going through the testosterone suppression because of the diagnosis, and that after a year, their testosterone is going to be low enough to compete with females without it being with other females without it being an issue. And I think we need to point out that this is not an easy transition. You don't just, you know, snap your fingers and all of a sudden you're, you were a girl and now you're a boy or boy and now you're a girl. This is a very difficult process to go through. It does take a long time. There's a lot of stress on the individual in going through the process, both mentally and physically. And so to add competition and anxiety, you know, performance anxiety on top of that probably is not, you know, it's probably not very welcome. So I think that's, that's not a bad decision that they made. Right. And a lot of, a lot of people who are passing these laws don't understand that because they've never known anybody who's gone through that transition. And in some cases wanting to go through it since they were three years old. I mean, they, you know, they didn't talk about a transition, but they identified with the sex other than their sex assigned at birth. And they did this before they ever knew the word transition or transgender. So this has been a part of their lives. And, you know, by the time they hit adolescence, they are pretty certain and they've explored this online and with other people, they're pretty certain that they want to go through this transition. But the people who are passing the laws they don't understand the complexity of these transitions and that it is a serious decision for the people who make it and for their families. And they think that there's going to be pretenders, you know, that there's going to be guys who just want to upset women's sports and they're going to pretend to be girls and they're going to go out there and dominate. And this is not going to happen. Okay, so that's a lot to go through just to win a match. I mean, I I just I don't think that anyone would go through that process for for a trophy. (laughs) Right. And the rules that exist in the NCAA and the IOC prevent the pretenders from coming in and dominating women's sports. So even though some of these politicians are saying that that these trans females are going to destroy women's sports and by the way, they've never supported Title IX to begin with, <laughs> but they're using this fear of destroying women's sports to pass these laws and to create some moral panic that, that will boost up the number of voters that are going to support them. Yeah, so I don't know where this is going, but I see it as kind of an artificial issue. Uh, you know, like I said, it's a solution in search of a problem. We don't know what the problem is. As we're trying to kind of expand our our minds here and, and think outside of, you know, male and female sports, what are the possible ways? I've been trying to figure this out on my own and not getting very far because, you know, separating athletes via testosterone level doesn't seem to be really an issue. And if we do it by skill or affinity to the sport, then we lose. Actually, let me back up for a second. Would you say that, because I've never been able to really get a good answer to this. If you had the most elite, best in the world, male athlete in in a sport and best in the world, most elite, you know, reaches full potential woman in that same sport, would there, would that be a fair match? 
In I don't certain, say equal, I say fair. Yeah, in certain sports, it would be. You know, for certain long-distance swimming, you know, I'm not an expert on all of this, but in certain long-distance swimming, some of the characteristics that the long-distance female swimmers have may lead them to even have an advantage over male swimmers. And in the Iditarod, you know, the, the, the dog sled races, you know, men are racing against women there. And some people are saying that women have a way of, of dealing with their animals that gives them an advantage. But nobody said that we ought to ban women from, from this race because they have an unfair advantage. You know, these are just rumors that circulate, you know, in connection with certain sports. But I think in certain sports, women at the elite level could compete with elite men. Now, I don't know how many sports or exactly which ones, but in sports generally, that wouldn't be the case. So, you know, there would be some rare exceptions here and there, but, you know, if you're talking about women in general, uh, even an elite category of women, that probably wouldn't be the case. So that they could compete fairly with men in a so-called men's sport. To get back to your original question here, you know, we are really primitive in terms of the way we think about men and women in sports. You know, we have divide, we have drawn the line, we've created the two boxes, and never the twain shall meet. When in fact, once we get out of school, what what's the first thing we do? We run, you know, as a man, I I ran with women all the time. I've entered races, and even though they have categories for men and women, women were beating me all the time. I cycle, and the person that I used to cycle and train with, a woman, she was a better cyclist than I was, but I trained with her. We were good friends, and I trained with her all the time. And by the way, if I was playing basketball again now as a 20-year-old, as a after I've just watched the NCAA tournament where you know, UConn is playing Baylor and other teams, you know, those women would probably give some of our college teams that I played on and played against, they would be giving us a good contest. And so, you know, things are changing. So I don't know what the future is going to hold, but this, these two boxes that we've created are not realistic, especially in, in sports that are supposed to be part of education. Right. We should have many more mixed sports. And there's so many creative ways to score competitions so that you could have men and women on the same teams competing against each other. So swimming, for example, you, maybe you wouldn't have men and women in the or boys and girls in the pool at the same time, but you combine the scores of the men's team and the women's team for one school and the competing school, you'd add the men's score and the women's score together, and you'd figure out one winner. And that way, the men would be seeing the women on their team as teammates, yeah. and they would be giving them forms of encouragement, and vice versa, by the way, that would really bring, bring boys and girls together in positive relationships, the kinds of relationships that we'd like to see them have after they get out of school, and lead them to define men and women, you know, the, the so-called other sex in some way other than sexual terms. Boys and girls need that experience. It's great to have a close friend who's not 
a fellow male, so to speak, in my case and in other men's cases and boys' cases. So there's no reason not to have those relationships. And our sports should be a context within which those relationships have an opportunity to form and be nurtured. So, and then there are other sports where you could have men and women on the same course, like in cross-country running, or, and why don't we have BMX biking? And why don't we have cycling and trail riding and Jump other roping. Sp- yeah, jump roping. Uh, you know, we're stuck with all these 19th yeah. century sports that I don't fit with the way we the the world works right now and the way people define things so you know we're stuck with football for pete's sake uh, american football when there are so many other sports that would have no injuries or low injuries that would provide uh, for much more inclusion and for boys and girls to compete together so there's ways to organize volleyball softball even baseball so that Boys and girls, men and women can play on the same field and with rules regulating maybe the number of people, you know, the number of women and men on on a team so that we could play together. And if sport is really educational, which the NCAA and all these high school athletic associations tell tell us Mm -hmm. that it is, then we ought to be thinking in broader educational terms about how to bring boys and girls, men and women together in sports in ways where they can complement one another, develop relationships with one another, become good friends, support each other, and help each other become better athletes and more sensitive human beings. Absolutely. I love that idea. When you, as a coach, and you're thinking about creating your culture of your team, I mean, that just kind of blew it out of proportion to the point where here's a chance for a whole program to create an inclusive culture that could build each other up. Mm -hmm. I I just, I love that idea. Now, who's going to go to the NFL and the NCAA and tell them? (laughs) Well, I don't think there's, I don't think the money is going to, is going to work for them. No, I've given up. I mean, the NFL is irrelevant here. And, you know, the the elite professional sports, I mean, this is is something that I'm not interested in. You know, let them go their way. I mean, these are consenting adults. You know, I don't want to take on global capitalism in addition to... That's uh, what you would have to do. Really? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the issue. You get to the point where you're trying to figure out how you, you know, separate and divide competition to make it beneficial. And I think we've been so focused on professional football, basketball, the big, the big money makers, that the reason we play sports has kind of gone away. The, the focus has shifted and, and that I find unfortunate. And I love the way that you are bringing that back to the forefront and saying, you know, yeah, okay, that's a business. Let them do that. But what are we doing for regular people, regular athletes to to make them better human beings, as you said? Yeah. And and you hit the nail on the head when you pointed out that we're using elite professional sports, pro-Olympic sports is what we say in the sociology of sport. It's kind of a merger of professional and the elite Olympic sports. We're using that as a model for our (laughs) seven-year-olds, 
in addition to our high school and, and college students, where sport is supposed to be educational. So what happens is that all of these educational principles have gotten undermined and f in some cases completely forgotten and been replaced by this commercial prolimpic model that is irrelevant to education. So I'm an educator. So I look at high school and college sports in educational terms and, and how can we make them change them in ways that contribute to the overall development of our students and of our young people? That's what we ought to be doing. Now, that in itself is a major challenge, but you know, with COVID-19 right now and what it's doing to the financial health of high school and college sports, a lot of these schools are going to be looking for alternatives in the future because they can't afford to maintain these prolimpic models that they've created that are money losers, you know, at the high school and the vast, vast majority of colleges. So maybe some people are going to be more open to considering alternatives. And one of the great alternatives is to combine boys and girls and men and women and, and create the rule context and the sport context in ways that fit with that. I love it. Absolutely. You know, I think that the, that the only thing that, that I would raise is that when people think about gender, they think about it in essentialist terms. And and, you know, the reality of gender is not essentialist. I mean, there aren't these two discrete boxes that divide the world into two categories and that we've got to open up our minds to thinking in more realistic and accurate terms when it comes to our relationships in general, but sports in particular. That's the case that I make when I talk about thinking creatively about new sport forms that would be much more educational for our boys and girls and young men and women, where they would be competing alongside each other in ways where they would support each other and develop good supportive relationships and learn to know each other. And that way, we break down some of the so-called differences between men and women that are creating some serious problems. We destroy stereotypes in the process. You know, what could be better than that? So we could destroy stereotypes about men being completely insensitive and interested in aggression and domination. And we could destroy stereotypes about women being fragile and vulnerable by nature and inferior to men physically and other ways. And I can't think of a, a better set of outcomes than destroying those stereotypes. Sport for the, for the power of better society. I, right. I am a full believer. Right. That is wonderful. Well, Jay, as always, I truly enjoy and appreciate our, our discussions. And I look forward to next week's discussion on gender equality, perhaps. Okay. Well, um, we'll, thank we'll you so care. much. Okay. okay, Meg. Take care. Have a good week. Thanks for listening. Make sure to leave us a five-star review and hit the follow button because there's more sport knowledge on the way. If you're interested in more information or want to engage in further conversation about these and other issues in sport, visit our website at spknmedia.com. To stay updated on all things SPKN, follow us on social media at spknmedia or email us at team at spknmedia.com and we'll be happy to welcome you to the SPKN community.